Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. Ezra, again, happy Super Bowl Sunday, or Taylor Swift watching Sunday, I don't know. Um, we're going to continue the series in Ezra that Gabriel started last week of renew. We're really continuing the theme of renewal that we really started back in January with the, the fast. And we're going to be kind of looking at that through the lens of Ezra. And the book of Ezra is really, it's, it's focused on this theme of, re, of restoration and renewal. Um, the restoration of the house of God and the people of God. Um, this, this, uh, this Hebrew word for, for house appears about 60 times in the book of, of Ezra, and it often refers to literally a, a house, a physical structure, but it also can refer to kind of a metaphorical um, concept of the people who make up the house, who live in it. So, and we do this too. We talk about how we live in a house, but we have a household that we are a part of. And Ezra is really about the, the renewal of, of both the house of God, but more so the, the people of God, the household of God. So let me just go ahead and read uh, Ezra 3. We're going to be in all of chapter Ezra 3 uh, today, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. So here we go, Ezra 3. When the seventh month came and the people of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the house of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept the feast of booze, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule as each day required, and after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen and the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. 
And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So remember Gabriel started off this series last week speaking of God stirring the heart of the Persian pagan king Cyrus to release the, the Jews from exile, to go back to their land, to rebuild the house of the Lord. He also stirred the hearts of the people of Israel to go and do this. Um, but they're, they're fearful, it says in this passage. They're fearful of the peoples of the land. And the question that I want to bring for us today as we approach Ezra chapter 3 is, is this. What does renewal look like according to Ezra chapter 3? What might practices of renewal look like, especially in the midst of maybe being fearful of opposition that may come from, from outside? You know, we, we're familiar with that today. Um, you may be fearful of different things, um, but fearful of individual things in your life or collectively of opposition from the culture coming against the, the church. Um, but what does renewal look like in the midst of that? Now, I want to be careful to say we can't look at these things that we're about to, to talk about as some kind of a formula that we have to follow, like you do this, this, and this, and then God's guaranteed to do this in response, as if you can somehow force God's hand. He's God, and we're not. He's going to move and renew how and when he chooses. At the same time, I think that we can see these practices of renewal as ways to posture ourselves individually and corporately, collectively, as ways to say we want to be ready to receive. We want to be ready to participate in what you're going to do, God. Pastor John Tyson um, up in New York City, he, I love the way he puts it. He says, God comes where he's wanted. God comes where he's wanted. The flip side of that, the scary flip side of that is where he's not wanted, it's not very likely that he's going to come and show up and move. So let's look at these practices in Ezra 3 as ways to say, God, we want you. We want you in our lives. We want you in our families. We want you in our church. So what might practices of renewal look like in Ezra? We're going to look at four of them. I'm going to try to move quickly. So first is this. Re-engage with the rhythms God has given. Re-engage with the rhythms God has given. So verses basically two through six, they begin offering sacrifices again. They begin celebrating the feast days again. Think about it. They probably haven't done that for a long time, being in exile, but they've started to do that again. And it's interesting that the very first feast that they celebrate is, did you catch what was the first feast that they celebrated? It's actually on the screen. Um, but... It's the Feast of Booze, or also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And these things are all given back in the first five books of, of, the, of the Bible. And the Feast of Booze is basically a way that the people of Israel would commemorate the time that God sustained them in the wilderness. 
after they've been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're in that wilderness season, that God was with them, that he sustained them, he provided for them. And so it was a week-long celebration. It would start on the 15th day of the month, go for a week, and they would literally build these little huts together, and they would celebrate looking back at God's faithfulness to sustain them in the past. And it was something that was done at the autumn time, the harvest time of the year. So it was kind of a way to look back and celebrate God's faithfulness at the past and also look forward to the, the year to come. And it says three times in, throughout chapter 3 of Ezra that basically they're not creating new things here. They're not creating new practices, new novel ways to meet with God. They're going back to things that were instructed and given to them years ago from Moses. It says, as it was written, things that King David had instructed them to do. They're returning to re-engaging with the rhythms, the practices that, that God had given them. And you know, I think about us today. We are, whether you realize it or not, you are more than what you know, a creature of habit, right? You do things in rhythms and in habits, and you do things repeatedly to the point of where you don't really think about when you do them. I can get from fullness, from the office here at fullness to my home in Alabaster with basically not thinking about it. In fact, if I don't think about it, I'll probably go there instead of going somewhere else that I mean to go because it's just a habit. And we're all that way. You have habits and rhythms. And the rhythms that you perform are actually forming you. The things that you do habitually, are, they're doing something to you for good or for bad. You cannot regularly give yourself a diet of looking at pornographic images without it affecting, literally rewiring your brain of how you view people of the opposite sex or the same sex, depending on what you're looking at. Um, you cannot take in different political voices, political commentary, without it literally shaping how you view things, how you view the world, how you view groups of people. The things that you do, do something to you. And we're given throughout Scripture different rhythms both collectively as the people of God and individually, right? And I'm not going to um, go through this in detail, but just real quickly, you see these are some of the different corporate rhythms that we're given, and we try to practice these regularly as a, as a church. I should have put on here um, specifically laying on hands and praying because we try to make a, a regular practice of that as well as fasting. Um, but those are some corporate rhythms. But then also individual rhythms that, that you, you see um, that we're given. And... <clears throat> last summer, I, uh, oh, by the way, this is also a shameless plug for Fullness Academy. If you want to dive in deeper to, to these rhythms, uh, Gabriel will lead you on a, a deep dive into look how, how these might look. Um, but last summer, uh, my family and I, we went on a sabbatical. We, we got to take a sabbatical. The elders here at Fullness had, had blessed us to, to get to do that, and I'm very thankful that they've kind of written that into the, the rhythms of the, the staff here at fullness. Um, but one of the things that I, I did personally during that time was I read a book on anxiety um, that I, I knew I'd wanted to read. And so I, I kind of set aside that time to read it. And it was very helpful to, to my soul to kind of work through that. And it kind of showed me some things about myself that I didn't even know were there. I'll say just a little more about that here in a few minutes. Um, but one of the things that I felt like the Lord was leading me to do as a response to working through this topic was to begin making the Lord's Prayer a, regularly part, a regular part of my, my prayer life. 
And I, of course, I had prayed the Lord's Prayer before. We pray it, we try to pray it once a month here at Fullness. But I felt led to like make this a daily thing. And so I started doing that. And I, I wouldn't literally like just pray word for word, like, you know, through it. I, I kind of used it as a, as a guide and as a structure and as a way to help me meditate. Our Father. And I just start meditating. God, thank you that I can call you my Father. Thank you that the whole reason that I can call you my Father is because Jesus, your eternal Son, made a way that I can refer to you the same thing that he refers to you by. And I'm that close to you. And then I'd move to, to the next line and just kind of use that to guide my prayer. And it was so good for my soul. The structure was actually not stifling to my prayer life. It actually was, was life-giving. Now you may say, well, can't that just become like a dry rope thing that you just say by memory? Yes, of course it can. But also, that's a rhythm that Jesus gave to his followers. And when you pray, pray like this. And it does something to your soul when you return and re-engage with the rhythms that God has given. So that's number one. Number two, re-examine the foundation of our worship. Re-examine the foundation of our worship. Verses really 10 through 12, but also verse six are all verses where a key word is the word foundation. The word appears four times in this section of Ezra, more times in this section than anywhere else in the book. And of course, they're, they're laying a literal foundation for a, a physical building, right? But I think that we can draw theological, spiritual principles out of this because for the people of Israel, the temple, and before that, the tabernacle, was literally in the middle of their community. So their lives, their worship, their everything revolved around this place, this physical location where the presence of God was, was housed. And so the foundation was, it was literally a rebuilding of the foundation of their lives and of their worship. And I, I, I was just, I was thinking a little bit about that. How do we think about foundations? And if you just kind of imagine with me for a second, a foundation is something that you can't see, right? Because it's, it's underneath, but it's pretty critical. If there's problems with the foundation, what's built on top of it is going to start to really struggle. Um, and it takes a while to build a foundation. I was talking uh, last Sunday with uh, Jesse Ray, who's a contractor, and um, he builds houses, and he's been saying that it's been taking him several weeks to, to build, to lay some foundations for these new houses in this year. Um, it's critical, the, the foundation. You know, I think back to anybody else here, were you a big fan of Legos when you were a kid? Yes. Um, one of my favorite toys when I was a kid was, was building Legos, getting new Lego sets. Um, you may think that this was really cool or really weird. I was the kid who, when I got my, my set of new Legos, I had to follow the directions Amen. perfectly, Amen. step by step. And once I completed it, there could be no mixing between different genres of Lego sets. So like I had cowboy Legos, like cowboys and bandits, and I had like an imperial British ship. Uh, I, I guess I had that instead of the pirate ship. And, um, but they could not mix. They could not go together. And I would go over to other kids' houses where they would just take all their Legos and just put them together in one big box, and it would, like, drive me crazy. Um, that's just me. I, I'm probably weird that way. But uh, even now, if you're, if you're playing with any kind of building toy, like when I 
play with my kids. They have these, these uh, well, they do have Legos, like my old Legos, because I kept them. I didn't want to get rid of them. Um, but like these wooden, big wooden, or not wooden, but cardboard blocks that they'll build like towers and stuff with. And they'll try to build them up pretty high because they want to build them as high as they can. And they'll topple, they'll fall down. And so I feel like we're continually having this conversation. Well, the problem is that the, your foundation's not good enough. So you got to make a sturdy foundation so that you can, can build it up high on top of that. And uh, you know, I, was, I was, I'll go back. Um, Kate Bowler is a lady who, she's studied the history of the prosperity gospel. Um, she's a historian. And she's also someone who's very familiar and acquainted with, with suffering in her life. She's battled cancer um, for a while. But she said something that was very simple, but I thought very profound that I heard recently on a, on a podcast. She said this, most of the things that build our lives are things that can come apart at any moment. If you think about it, that's pretty true. Most of the things that build our lives are things that can come apart at any moment. And how can you tell if the foundation on which you're building your life, maybe your family, maybe even a, a church that's building on, um, is not a good foundation, is more of a, a false or faulty foundation? Well, I'm going to suggest, and you can take this and weigh this and see if this resonates with you, but I'm going to suggest that when the foundation is threatened, you become anxious, that actually anxiety can be a little bit of a clue, not, maybe not necessarily a, a 100% guarantee, but a clue into maybe there's a foundation that you're putting weight on, asking to hold things up in your life that wasn't meant to do that, and you have a fear that it's being threatened, and it's causing you to feel anxious. Last year, like I said, um, I worked through a book on anxiety during the sabbatical, and I felt like the Lord did some, some good soul work in and me on that, um, we took our young adult group through a curriculum on anxiety last fall. And um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who struggles with anxiety here, because if you're honest, 100% of you will raise your hand. Um, but you know that it's not just a one and done. Like you have a great experience and then you don't ever struggle again. It's a process. It's a journey through it. But um, one of the things that, that I learned that was helpful for me was to think of anxiety as anxiety is a fear of the future. And it's a fear specifically of loss in the future. Anxiety is a fear of loss in the future. It lives in the future. Not, it really doesn't live in the present. Um, it continually tries to get your mind out of the present and into the future. And it's a fear of losing something that you care about in the future. And we have all ways, all kinds of ways of dealing with, coping with our anxiety and typically, the way that we do that, it'll look different for different people, but it's very easy for idols to hide in that. So something that we look to to kind of, kind of numb that, that fear. And another way to look at that is that is a foundation that you're trying to build on that's, that's faulty. Um, so I'd, I'm going to be vulnerable here for, for a, a, a minute and just say I've, one of the things I feel like the Lord kind of revealed to me last year was that I struggle with an anxiety of fearing of the loss of approval and a fear of the loss of approval of, of, of people. Um, a flip side of that is, is needing to have the approval uh, in different spheres of my life as a, as a husband, 
as an employee, an under-shepherd who works under leadership here at Fullness, as a pastor here at Fullness. And that's a dangerous place to be because can that foundation hold up a life? The fear of, of losing approval of others. That can't hold up a, a life, much less a marriage, much less a local church. But that's what we do. We build on foundations like that. And we obviously, you know, we live in in an anxious time in our country, right? I don't think that's controversial to say at all. Um, You know, young people are, according to to surveys, the young generation today is the most anxious generation that's ever lived. And at least since we've been keeping track of that. I've heard that um, the level of anxiety that a, a psych patient, a psych ward patient experienced a few decades ago is just now the normal level of anxiety that a young person today deals with. That's just, that's just how they are. Um, so we have young people that are anxious about their identity and feeling loved and accepted and embraced and building their identity on all kinds of foundations. And you got people who are anxious over their financial security and, and future. You got people that are anxious over politics and what's gonna happen in politics. And that ramps up like 100% over... The year over the course of, a, of an election year like this. And I wonder, could possibly a reason why we are so anxious as a, a society right now be that we have built our lives in our worship on a foundation that was never meant to hold us up in the first place. And those foundations are being threatened and it's causing us to be anxious Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3.11. I think my clicker went to sleep, Zach. 1 Corinthians 3.11. Oops, I'm going too fast. We'll get it. There we go. Paul says, speaking of the church, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If we are not built on him, I mean, Any renewal, any move of renewal, any work of renewal that we're going through individually or corporately that doesn't lead to a bigger view of Jesus, it's not worth anything. Can I get, yes, amen, can I get an amen? Um, (laughs) Thank you, whoever whoever beat me to it. Even the the practices of renewal that that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, Those cannot be looked at. Those rhythms cannot be looked at as just some kind of way to do self-help, to say, well, I'm just gonna become a a less anxious, more peaceful person. No, those things are are designed to make us more impressed with who Jesus is, to be more in awe of him, more conformed to his image. And if any act of renewal, movement of renewal doesn't lead to that, it's really, it's worthless. It's building on a foundation that is not gonna last and let me say this, if, if, you're, if that kind of like nudged you a little bit when I said an anxiety can be an indication of a faulty foundation, let me just say, take heart, don't panic if you feel like, oh no, I think I do have some foundations that are not good. Remember, who started all of this renewal in Ezra? It was not the, the pagan king Cyrus. He was used. It was not even the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel. It was God stirring them up. It was his idea to do this renewal, this work in them. He's more committed to your renewal 
than you are. And that is good news. And that leads to the next one. Remind each other of the goodness of God. Remind each other of the goodness of God. Verse 11 is the, the, you probably will recognize this, the common phrase that they say, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Now, this is the only place in Ezra and in Nehemiah, the sister book of Ezra, where this phrase appears. But if you know your Old Testament, you probably recognize this because this appears multiple times in Chronicles. It's always, I believe it's always connected to the construction of the temple. This also appears multiple times in the Psalms, starting in Psalm 106, and then it's kind of the later Psalms. This refrain, this is the refrain of the people of Israel, for God is good, for his love endures forever. And I could have made the entire sermon on this, um, but I, I can't do that. But I've become convinced, I've become increasingly convinced over the last few years that a key question for our moment, especially for young people, but I think for everyone in our moment in the West, is, is God good? And you may think, well, that, that, I'm not, I don't know if I would say that's the question of our moment. Hear me out. I think we can all probably give mental assent to that. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, of course God's good. He's, he's God. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being deeply persuaded and convinced in your, in your gut that even when there's stuff that I read that he says in scripture that I disagree with, I don't like, um, even when there's circumstances happening that I'm like, I don't understand this. I would not have allowed this to happen if I were you, God. But I still trust your heart. I still trust that you are good. Um, English Puritan, John Owen. I like reading old dead guys periodically. <laughs> and this is one of my favorites. Um, we actually partly named our son Owen after John Owen. He lived in the 1600s. And he basically said, uh, John Owen basically argued that, that humans naturally tend to have harsh thoughts towards God. Kind of our natural bent is to not think of him as intrinsically good, but we tend to think of him as more irritable and moody. And that's why we're, we are hesitant to draw too near to him, especially maybe after we sin. We think, oh, he's going to be in a bad mood. I'm going I'm to run away from him. I don't want to run to him because that's, we just have harsh thoughts naturally towards him. And Owen says that this actually grieves the heart of the father because this is not who he is. But he said this actually causes Satan. He actually says Satan claps his hands when this happens, when we have harsh thoughts of God. Because if you think about it, this was his strategy from Genesis 3. What does he do when he comes to Eve? Well, he questions the truth of God's word, but then he questions the goodness of God's character. When God gave you this command, he was withholding things from you. There were things that he was not letting you have access to because is he really for you? Is he really good? He was questioning the goodness of God's character. And that's still, I think you can trace so many of the things that the enemy does back to this question of testing and challenging us to, to doubt God's goodness. Another old dead guy. And this next person I put up, I know he's controversial. I, I'm not putting this up as an endorsement of everything that he taught and believed. Um, but John Calvin, the reformer. 
I love this definition that he gives of faith. I'm going to read it to you now. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's good will to us, which founded upon the free promise given us in Jesus Christ is revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. First of all, this is a beautiful Trinitarian picture of the goodness of God. But what I really love about what Calvin says is faith is basically being convinced that God is good. It's being convinced that God is good and that God is good to me. Now, this goodness is found in Jesus. We really can't find it anywhere else outside of Jesus. Goodness is tasted through the Holy Spirit. But faith is being convinced that God is good and he's good to me. And if I'm honest, this has changed the way that I pray the last few years. Um, My favorite verse over the last few years, I'll just put it up here. I like to confess aloud the goodness of God. And so Psalm 119.68 has become my favorite verse over the last few years. And so you, maybe you've even noticed that I frequently pray this out loud when I pray. This is a psalmist praying directly to God. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Notice the, the trail of thought there. If I'm not convinced that he's good and that he does good, I'm not going to ask him to teach me his statutes. I'm not going to walk in his ways and his statutes, but if I'm convinced of the goodness of his character, I'm going to say, I want to follow you. I want to follow your statutes. You are good and you do good. And frequently now when I pray for my kids at night, I will pray that God convinces them that he's good, that they'll be utterly convinced to the core of who they are, that regardless of what they may walk through in life, that they know that he's good that they're convinced that he's good. That's what I pray for the young people here at Fullness, that they can really pray this and mean it and believe it. And one of the primary ways, one of the primary means that God has provided, I think biblically, that we, for us to be reminded and convinced that he's good is by being with the people of God. That's what happens in this passage, right? They gather together and they proclaim each other. They remind each other of the goodness of God. And so when we gather together, yes, we're proclaiming, we're speaking to him, you are good, but we're also reminding each other because where we're coming from, we may not be very convinced of that because of what's going on in our visual lives, what's happened that week. And so we need reminded, I need you to remind me, you need me to remind you that he is good, that he does good, that his steadfast love endures forever. And another shameless plug, if I can, can make it, um, we have a brand new young adult group um, that I am super excited about that Chase and Cameron and Sloan are going to be leading for kind of post-college uh, young people in their 20s. And um, not just coming on Sunday mornings, but getting part of a small group is a way to get with people who can remind you and help convince you of the goodness of God. Because the community that you're in is going to have a big role in what you think about the character of God. Are you in a community that's going to remind you that he is good and that he does good? And then fourth, last one. Renew a right perspective of God's actions in history. I think it's so interesting how this chapter, Ezra 3, ends. Um, It ends basically with these two, I don't have it up here, but um, after they complete the foundation of the, the temple, there and they are gathered and they're singing he is good for his steadfast love endures forever you have these two reactions that are going on and they're it's the reactions of two different generations 
um, the older generation, those who were old enough to have been there and remember Solomon's temple in the past, they look back, they think back to that and they look at this, what they're looking at right now, this new foundation, and they see that it's not as big, not as glorious. And their reaction is one of weeping. And it's, that's, these aren't happy tears, I don't think. They're, they're looking back and they're weeping that this is not what was, that it's not what they remember it being. And then you have the younger generation, those who are not old enough to have been there, and they're shouting with joy. And it's this loud noise that nobody can tell the difference, like between the shouting and the weeping. And I was, that was one of the first things that stuck out to me when I started looking at this passage. Like, what are we meant to do with this? Like, what does this mean? How are we to take this? Are we supposed to side with one generation over the other and see them as they were the right one and the other one was the wrong one? And I'm going to say I'm not totally positive either. I want to present this humbly, but here's, here's my guess that I want to, want to present to us. My guess is that I think both had a fair reason for their response, and I think both probably had some blind spots, and there was probably something inadequate about their response. Let me say what I, what I mean there. The older generation... They, they did what I think all older generations tend to do, um, to kind of look back at, at the good times of the past and remember those times where, where God moved, where he really showed up in a, in a powerful way and, and look back to those times of great, maybe in their individual life or a, a church or a movement they were part of or our nation and think, man, it'd be so good to, to go back to that time, to experience that time again. And there's something that's good about that, right? We want to rejoice in God's faithfulness in the past. I remember studying about the, the great awakenings that happened, the revivals in, in our country. And there's something that's just encouraging and stirring to your soul to look back at the ways God moved in the past. But the danger of that is you might miss out on what God wants to do here and now, right? Right? If you're, all you want to do is just look back to, to what he did in the past and going back to then, you might miss what he's doing now because he may not move the same way that he did in the past. It may look different. Yes, we return to some of the same practices, but God can do what he wants and he might move differently. Also, the past was often not as great as what we remember a lot of times. This era of as glorious as Solomon's temple was, this was also the era where his heart was drawn away by his many pagan wives to idolatry. And as the heart of the king went, so went the heart of the people. And that led them to the situation that they were in in the first place of going into exile. But if you're a younger generation, don't be too hard on the older generation. You're gonna get there one day. You're gonna be part of that generation one day soon. But then let's look at the younger generation for a second. It was right, I think, for them to celebrate that God's doing something. He's stirring us up and we're part of something bigger than ourselves like Gabriel preached about last week and um, celebrating his, his, him renewing things in the present moment. At the same time, this temple that they were about to build, it was not as glorious as the previous one and it wouldn't be the ultimate and final temple. I'm not really gonna... I'm going to kind of leave that hanging because Pastor Bart's going to pick up on that in, in later weeks and chapters. But what they were seeing at this moment was only a small sliver 
of what God was doing. They had no idea what was coming in the future. And so I think, yes, we, we celebrate God's move in the past. We'd be ready to participate with God moving here in the future, in the present. But we also want to say, God, you could be doing things that we have no idea, building for generations down the road. And we want to be open to that too. This is not the end movement either, what's going on right now. Does that make sense? My dad um, was a, a college baseball coach, you know, I think most of you know, Coach uh, Birmingham Southern and UAB for, for many years. And one of the things that he would tell his players is he would say, people should not be able to tell by looking at your body language, whether we're winning or losing. They shouldn't be able to tell on how you carry yourself, how your, your facial expressions is, what's coming out of your mouth. In other words, don't get too celebratory and jo- joyful if, if we're winning and things seem to be going really well. Don't get too down and depressed if we're losing. I think the same thing is true and can be said for the people of God. If it looks like we're winning and things are going well and there's, been, there's some cool things happening at Fullness right now. There's new people coming in and just there's an energy and excitement of God, God is renewing and moving. Um, and we can celebrate that. But if it looks like we're losing, if it looks like things are like rough and, to- and going badly, let's remember God's not done yet. Let's rejoice in his goodness in the, in the good times and the winning. And let's remind each other of his goodness in the losing. And remember that he's still working and renewing. All right, if I, um, if I could get the, the worship team to come back up. We're gonna, I'm gonna wrap up. Some questions for us to ponder. Maybe just you to take home and think about. What rhythms are you practicing and how are they forming you in your life? Is there a rhythm of the Lord that you could return to? Maybe you could trade out one that you have for a rhythm of the Lord. What are you building on and expecting to hold up in your life? What, what foundation are you, are you building on? And remember, a clue to that is what, what causes you to be anxious? What causes you anxiety? Number three, how convinced are you of the goodness of God right now? And hey, if, you're, if you would have to say it's pretty low, that's okay. That's why you're here. We can remind each other of this. And lastly, how is your perspective of God moving in your life, our church, our land? Are you, are you celebrating the past? Are you wanting to go back to the past? Are you ready to participate in what he does now? Are you open to how he might move in the future in a way that you can't even imagine now? So here's what I want us to do. Um, we're going to stand up and we're going to remind each other of the goodness of God. I'm going to put up part of Psalm 136. I'm going to read the part where it says leader. You're going to respond the part where it says congregation. And then the team is going to lead us in a, in a closing song where we declare the goodness of God. So here we go. Stand up and let's proclaim this out loud. Remember, you're not saying this just for you. You're saying this to God, but also for the benefit of each other. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
It is he who remembered us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's sing of the goodness of God. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.